Welcome to Grain on the Brain by the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative. We're working to create resiliency and stability in the prairie organic grain sector. Tune in each month as we're joined by an industry expert and farmer to discuss important issues in organic grain farming. Check out our website at pivotandgrow.com and see what organic grain production can do for you. We bring the resources, tools, and expertise you need to get growing. sampling is one, it's kind of an interesting one that has been out there in certain crops already for a while for very specific nutrient requirements and specific crops. And if you look on some of the agricultural labs, they'll have really particular instructions on, you know, how to sample, let's say, potatoes uh, at a particular stage to understand the nitrogen requirements and that kind of thing. As a more general sampling approach, we've started developing it a little more just in the last few years at the University of Manitoba as a way of telling whether a crop is getting enough of a particular nutrient out of the soil. And you can kind of think of it as, you know, the soil test is trying to get at one side of that transaction between the soil and the plant. And it's essentially, you know, asking the soil ahead of time, like, so how much of each nutrient do you have to offer this crop that's going to be grown? And then sampling the plant tissue afterwards is like, you know, going to the prop after this whole transaction has taken place, look how much it was actually able to get out of the soil. And, you know, you will find that some crops are more persuasive than others and can actually get out more nutrients from the soil that didn't even show up on that soil test, that sort of initial offer that soil had. So, Taken together, soil and plant sampling, it just helps round out the the picture on what's happening between um, the soil and the crop. And this is particularly 
important and useful, I think, in organic cropping systems where mainstream soil tests are still useful, but they maybe don't really capture the organic type system as well as they could or as well as they do for conventional systems. So adding in that plant tissue sampling piece of the puzzle just gives a little more information. So yeah, I'm kind of hearing that the soil samples will help you get to your baseline and, and later on in the season you can see what the plants are actually able to access through looking at the plant tissue samples. Yeah, that's right. And especially if you start doing this over time, you can figure out what's happening on your own farm. Do your crops always do better than you might have expected from the soil test or worse? Or, you know, you can figure out some long-term trends on your own farm. Is there a better time to do a soil test in your mind, fall versus spring, or kind of maximum uptake in the growing season? What's a good way for you? I guess it depends what you're sampling for. A lot of the nutrients, especially the ones that are of interest to organic producers, and I'll say nutrients as well as other parameters, they don't actually change that much during the growing season. So things like phosphorus, potassium, organic matter, pH, uh, the micronutrients, those won't actually fluctuate that much during the growing season. So essentially you can take those samples pretty much whenever you want. Of course, there's logistical challenges to, you know, sampling in a growing crop, especially if you're wanting to be driving in it. But in terms of how meaningful the test is, those types of nutrients and other parameters that don't change very quickly can be sampled pretty much any time. Nitrogen is one, though, that varies widely, you know, through the season due to plant uptake. And sulfur also varies a lot. And chloride is another one that varies a lot. And so those you want to be sampling typically in the early spring or late fall. If you have to choose between those two, I would say whichever one's coming up sooner is the best time to sample because the sooner you have that information, more time you have to make some decisions about it. And timing of doing tissue samples if you were doing some sampling in your green manures? Yeah, if you are going to take samples out of the green manure crop in the ways that we've kind of described with this test that we've developed at University of Manitoba, you want to be sampling those at the flowering stage of the legume that's in the green manure. And that's a pretty important time frame to stick to because if you sample earlier than that, then all of the nutrient concentrations will, will be higher because it's a younger plant. And if you sample later than that time frame, they'll all be lower. So it can mess up the interpretation of your results a bit if you are outside of that specific time frame. So yeah, you want to be aiming for that legume flowering stage. Okay. And how how do I start, I guess? So if I decide I wanted to do soil samples starting this year, where do I begin? Well, I think the first thing, you know, if you're talking general soil samples, the first thing you want to ask yourself is what information do you want to gain? And, you know, what question are you trying to answer? And that'll help determine where in a field you should be sampling, which field you want to be sampling in. And then from there, you know, we can get into more of the specifics. But, you know, if you are only concerned with some problem areas in your field and not the whole field, then you want to focus your sampling in in those areas. Or if you're interested in the contrast between, you know, something you did on one side of the field last year versus the other side, that'll affect how you go about your sampling. So I think that's the first step you want to take is decide where do I actually want to take these samples to help me make some management decisions. Next, you want to make sure that you're being really consistent with your sampling method. So Consistency is probably more important than the actual details of how you do it and exactly how deep you go. 
or, you know, the number of, of samples that you take. But, you know, if your sampling depth, for example, is five inches in one spot and seven inches in another spot or various spots across the field, then your your results are going to maybe not reflect what's actually happening in your field. So you want to make sure you're doing things in a really consistent way. And I think the third thing that you want to remember just as you're getting ready to do this is to document how you did it so you can do it the same way the next time. And also any kind of conditions that might be affecting soil parameters. So has it been really wet or dry? What stage is the crop at? If, if there is a crop, you know, the date, the, the field history and all the kinds of things like that. Then generally speaking, you want to probably take about 15 or 20 soil samples per field or area of the field that you are trying to understand. And, you know, you can get these step-in probes from various sources, like I know AgVise Labs in North Dakota sells equipment. Probably other labs are selling equipment to do this yourself as well. And it is important to have a probe that takes a consistent sample size all the way down rather than, you know, just digging down with a shovel because you get a lot of soil from, say, the, the very surface, you know, the top couple inches, and less from the bottom of your sampling area, then that will throw off your results as well. So, yeah, generally they recommend you kind of walk across your field in a W pattern or some kind of pattern that lets you capture the whole field, avoiding any weird spots, you know, say like saline spots or hilltops or right in the, the bottoms of depressions so that you're capturing sort of the main part of the field that you want to understand. Of course, if you're wondering, what am I going to do about my eroded knolls where there's really low organic matter or something or some other problem area, then you would sample specifically in those spots. And then, yeah, it's important to keep your samples, if you're sampling to a couple depths, make sure you keep those surface soil samples set from the subsoil, bag them all up in, in plastic bags when you're done, mix them up. You can often get little sample bags from labs to send them in. Yeah, the labs will provide a lot of information too in terms of how exactly to go about collecting the samples and some might have specific requirements for, for different nutrients or that kind of thing. So it's always best to check with the lab. One other thing I'll say though is if you find this to be just a completely daunting prospect, it's always possible to contract an agronomist service, even an input supplier to come and do sampling for you and they have all the equipment and they, they can do it. The advantage of doing it yourself is that you are out in the field and making all kinds of other observations too and maybe seeing things that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Right. I was always of the opinion that you know where all the problem areas are or the anomalies in your field. And so if it's possible for you to do it yourself, I think there's there's lots of value in that. But, yeah, in my mind, if, if it's a difference of you getting it done or not, then that means that you call your local soil tester to come do it, then I think it's probably a good idea to get some idea of what's going on out there. That's right. I, I agree with that. Is there in your mind a good interval for doing this? Is it something I should do every field every year or try and pick one part of my rotation or what's a good frequency in your mind? I think for most organic farmers, it's not necessary to do every field every year because the nutrients that are really of interest probably won't be changing that rapidly. And also you may not be able to do anything about it in the year that you're sampling anyway. And so it's more of a long-term approach, long-term monitoring. We're sort of starting to recommend 
if you're doing this green manure bioassay, take your soil samples at the same time. So then if you have a rotation with a green manure every third year or so, then that's a good frequency every three years to kind of get a snapshot of what's happening on that that field. And that lets you kind of rotate among your fields too, so you're not needing to sample every field in one year. You would just be sampling a few every year. The exception to that would be, you know, if there's a particular field that you have noticed a problem and you might want to follow up on that field more quickly than you would otherwise, or if you've made a change on a field, so you sampled it last year and then applied some kind of soil amendment last fall, you may want to sample again sooner than three or four years to see what's happening there. I think I've been fairly comfortable with sampling in kind of a rotation to get a general idea of what's going on, but I find I'm often curious as to how much nitrogen I'm getting out of green manure or what I got from that manure application. Questions more around that that are maybe changing the timing of of some of of your sampling might have a pretty significant effect on, and so I find them going out every now and then in different times to see what's gone on there. For most of my nutrients, I find doing it in rotation, I think, gives me an idea of where it's going, which I think is kind of the biggest thing that I'm interested in. Yeah, I think being able to understand those long-term trends will end up having more value than than what the actual results are in any particular year. If you have the inclination, you know, more sampling doesn't doesn't hurt and uh, maybe can pick up trends more quickly, but I think the added value from sampling for things like phosphorus or organic matter and things like that every year is, is pretty small. You know, and nitrogen... I don't know if you mentioned that, is is kind of an interesting one in that in a conventional soil test or in conventional farming, you know, that's the nutrient that people are most interested in because that's where you can make the biggest impact with your fertilizer application. And in organic farming, it's probably the nutrient that is almost of least interest of all of them, except for maybe some here that in Manitoba that are just always high, like potassium, for example, in most soils. But yeah, the nitrogen thing, I find like a just a straight up nitrate test like you'll get at most labs probably doesn't capture a lot of the nitrogen that's actually going to be able to become available to your crop if you're using green manures or manure. And so, you know, if you test for that in the spring and get a fairly low result, you might kind of be panicking about your low nitrogen status when really there's a lot of nitrogen in other forms in that soil that could be uh, made available during the growing season. So, yeah, nitrogen actually ends up being one of the trickier ones to interpret in organic systems. Right, so maybe I should be waiting and seeing how the crop does as much as trying to figure out what it's going to do kind of thing in terms of nitrogen. Yeah, and again, you know, some extra testing doesn't hurt. And if you have the interest and the resources, I guess, to do a lot of testing and the ability to try to link it, the dedication maybe to go back and link it to, so how did that crop actually do in relation to that test? Then you could learn something about the nitrogen dynamics on your farm. But in most cases, I think it won't actually impact how you manage that particular crop. Maybe it will impact how you manage your green manures and in the future. The right green manure with the right management builds soil fertility, controls weeds, and improves crop yield. The online resource is a practical guide for producers to aid in selecting the appropriate green manure to include in their crop rotation. Visit pivotandgrow.com and find the link under our production resources. 
Another question I got for you, Joanne, is what to test for. When you get your soil samples and you're filling out the paperwork, I often feel a little bit overwhelmed with some of the choices that you can make in terms of what results you want to get back. Do you have some guidelines or some thoughts on kind of what's important there for most people? Yeah, I think uh, if you have not been doing soil testing recently, then you want to do a fairly comprehensive test, I think, for starters, to get a good baseline. And so, I mean, complete soil test will include quite a lot of things, micronutrients and that sort of thing as well, which may not provide any useful information to you, but may as well. And so, yeah, I think getting as complete a test as you can afford in the first place is a good idea. If you're needing to cut back on something, some of the really key things that I think need to be included as a baseline are your pH organic matter levels, soil phosphorus levels. And if you're given a choice of which soil phosphorus test to do, I think they're finding that the Olson test is appropriate for all soil pHs. It used to be that they recommended a different test for acidic soils, but now I think they're saying that the Olson test is good for pretty much any soil. So those basic macronutrients, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, are good to understand what's going on. The other nutrients like calcium, magnesium, and then getting down is the micronutrients are bonus information, I guess, but are, are good to have. And then, you know, if you have any concerns about, say, you know, a neighbor has a deficiency of a particular micronutrient, you want to, might want to make sure that that one's included in your test as well, as well as things like electric conductivity and soluble salts, if you think you may have some salinity issues. I think that kind of baseline information is very important. As you go forward then and get into a regular routine of sampling, say every three or four years, then you could probably cut down to those nutrients that were of particular interest to you, whether that be phosphorus or if you do have one of those rare soils in Manitoba that's low in potassium or low in sulfur or something like that, or some micronutrient deficiency. pH is one thing that's not going to change much so it doesn't necessarily need to get tested all the time. Organic matter also will be slow to change, but it's good to keep tabs on whether that's going up or down or staying the same. So it's a good one to include in your regular soil tests. And I guess then once we get all that done, we send it away, we get a report back. How to start interpreting that report? I guess I might sometimes feel the same thing. There's, there's often a lot of information on there, and you're not quite sure where to start looking to some answers on whether you've got a healthy soil or not. Yeah, and that's always a, a little tricky with a mainstream soil test because they are designed for conventional systems where the purpose of the test is to see how much of each nutrient you need to add to grow a particular crop or yield. And so for organic farmers, the interpretation sometimes needs to be a little different. And like you say, it can be overwhelming to just see all those numbers and have no idea what they mean. Um Many labs will include at least a little bit of interpretation for you, as in they'll put a rating along with each actual number. So let's say your phosphorus is at six parts per million Olson P, then that would be given probably a rating of low. So it gives you at least a little bit of idea of where those fall in relation to what you might want to be aiming for. The tricky part is that in organic systems, maybe some of those assumptions that they're using for conventional farming don't necessarily hold true. And it makes it all a little complicated. And I don't think we can really get into a lot of the details of how to interpret each nutrient. 
But it's just important to remember that those results need to be kind of understood in the context of organic farming, which is different than conventional farming, and also in the context of your own farm. And so you might need to keep in mind, you know, what is the crop management history of that particular field? A soil nitrogen level that's kind of on the low side. If it's in a field that has a high level of organic matter, you might end up getting a very different result with your crop than that same level of nitrogen in a field that has a low level of organic matter. So there's some interaction between the different aspects of your soil test that are important to keep in mind. Also, you know, which crops are you growing there? So, for example, flax can do better at lower soil test phosphorus levels than, say, a legume crop or a cereal. You want to consider, have my previous crops showed any sign of deficiency at certain levels of particular nutrients? And if in the past you've had good performance with your flax, let's say, even though your soil phosphorus is at four parts per million, then maybe four parts per million is okay and it's not anything to worry about for this year anyway. Visit pivotandgrow.com and check out our production fact sheets. Get practical information to integrate into your farming systems to improve your marketing and production practices. Learn how to design an optimal rotation plan, live with weeds, increase crop diversity, and so much more. It raises the question, you know, is, is higher always better when we're dealing with soil nutrients? And I think we're learning that, especially for nitrogen and phosphorus, that no, it's not always better. And in fact, with nitrogen, if you've got really high levels, you may actually be at risk of nitrate leaching, which is, for one, it's a waste of all of your hard-earned nitrogen that was fixed with your green manure, and it's an environmental problem. Um, same, same with phosphorus. Is Should your goal be to actually get it up into that high rating uh, according to the soil test? And many people who are working on kind of ecological nutrient cycling, as well as certain farmers, have decided that no, they don't need to be up at that high level, that they can aim for, example, 10 parts per million, and that their crops will um, perform very well at those levels, or even lower, even, you know, eight or seven. So it takes some time, I think, to learn what your own soil tests are telling you. And, you know, I think you want to beware of comparing your own fields to other farmers' fields, and especially to conventional farmers' fields. I don't know if farmers sit around coffee shops bragging about their soil phosphorus levels or not, but, you know, if they do and your neighbor's bragging about his 40 parts per million, remember that that is probably not right for your organic farm. And is there a number of mistakes that people make either in their sampling process or in interpretation that are uh, things that you'd be able to share that are to be avoided? Well, I'm going to start by saying I think the first mistake that some people make is never soil testing because they feel that the conventional soil tests aren't valuable. So uh, please don't make that mistake. Please do go out and do some testing. Other common mistakes would, I think, get back to what I was saying about the consistency of your methods. So just making sure that, you know, when you're aiming for six-inch depth, that it really is six inches everywhere, uh, every sample that you take and that you're being careful not to, you know, cross-contaminate samples between fields, cleaning equipment between fields, that kind of thing. Also, in terms of the interpretation, maybe it gets back to that, you know, is higher always better 
question where we can feel like, in general, you know, higher scores are better in many things, but that doesn't necessarily hold true with soil testing, in particular the nitrogen and phosphorus, like I already talked about. So it just takes a little bit of uh, rethinking what the actual goal of, of your farming system is. Are you getting yields that are good and satisfactory? Are you getting good quality crops? Are you able to keep your weeds under control? And how do your nitrogen and phosphorus and other nutrient levels fit into that? So finding uh, some levels that work for you. Another thought here, I guess you had mentioned when we were talking about timing of sampling is uh, one time better than another. Your comment was kind of earlier the better so you've got time to make the changes that you see fit. I guess thinking about crop rotation, are there situations where you get your soil tests back and you think, well, maybe what I was planting isn't the best crop and so I should be looking at another another crop or, or moving into my green manure phase for my rotation? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I think there's one where, in particular, where the where the nitrogen result is useful. And so if you, say, were planning to go into a, a high nitrogen-using crop, wheat, for example, and you did get your soil test back and the nitrogen levels in your soil were very low, like, say, below 20 pounds per acre, then you would want to be rethinking that crop potentially, and maybe going to something that has a lower nitrogen requirement. On the other side of things, let's say you were actually ready to go back into a green manure phase, or you were planning to grow a soybean or a pulse crop, a nitrogen fixer, and you got your soil test back and your nitrogen was on the high side, then I think you would be justified in changing some plans and avoiding growing a legume there and actually growing, growing something that could use up that excess nitrogen. So there are cases where that soil test give you reason to, to change your crop choice for a particular field. Right. Yeah, like I think a lot of the time the answer to what you find in your soil test might not be that you need to find a way to apply that nutrient. It might be to make a different change in order to react to the deficiencies that you're perceiving from your test results. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, it can also be a lesson on the long-term management side of things. So what caused that nitrogen to be high when you weren't expecting it to? Was it a, a poor yield in the fall in the previous crop so that not a lot of nitrogen was used? Or was the field maybe in alfalfa for a long time and the nitrogen is being released maybe sooner than you thought or later than you thought? Yeah, it can help to kind of understand what's going on with the nutrient dynamics and help with the long-term planning too. I do get a lot of questions from fellow farmers about different kind of soil tests or soil health. I'm wondering if there's other ones that we haven't really talked about that you maybe see value in or the opposite that you feel like are maybe leading people down a path that will lead to more confusion than, than anything else. Yeah, it's a great question, especially because there are so many tests that are being developed now and are being used in certain places. It's the kind of thing where for a test to actually be useful, there's a few different pieces that need to be in place. And if any one of them is missing, then you kind of have a problem and it's not going to be really a useful test for you. So if the test is not reproducible, as in if you do the test five times on the same field and you get a wildly different result every time, then that obviously is not going to help you at all. Also, if the test isn't really, if it hasn't really been used in similar conditions to what you have in your climate and your soil type, then there can be problems with interpreting the results. 
And I'd say that particular one is the big one that sort of limits the usefulness of many of the tests uh, that are currently becoming available, is that, that they haven't been used much under our conditions here in the prairies. And so it's just difficult to calibrate because you, you get this number back, but you have nothing to compare it to. Or what you have to compare it to is soils in, you know, northeastern U.S. or North Carolina, which obviously has a very different climate and different soil types. So I guess I would just say that with any of those alternative soil health tests, I would proceed with caution and I would be making sure that I don't put a ton of weight on the interpretation that comes with the test from the lab. That maybe sounds a little counterintuitive, but rather than that, I would, if you're really interested in a particular test, then do it on your own farm where you know what the conditions were, where you can compare either over time, you know, same field, and then, you know, what has happened as I added whatever amendment or changed my rotation, or even better yet is side-by-side comparisons where you know the conditions are the same, the weather was the same, the soil type's the same, but you have a management difference so that you can take side-by-side samples and compare to something on your own farm rather than to something that um, has happened far away. So those are my words of advice on that. Uh, I think there'll be a time, and hope a time that's fairly near in the future, where these tests will be a lot more available and better suited to our conditions and will actually give us some, some useful information that can influence our management. Yeah, hopefully that time comes soon. In the meantime, it's possible that you may be just as well off making your own observations on the health of the soil, which, you know, looking for life forms in there, you know, looking at the structure of the soil, the aggregate, the infiltration rate, even the smell of it, those can tell you a lot without having to send things off to a lab. It's not to say that those tests are not valid, but I think we just have to be a little careful here because they haven't been used much, haven't been calibrated for our conditions. I think that what you just kind of touched on is a very important point. It seems like those measures of aggregate stability and infiltration and things like that, we talked about nitrogen leaching and the effect downstream. I think this spring was there was more soil erosion than I've seen in my lifetime, and some of those tests would probably give you a pretty good inkling of some of the practices that we're using that are pretty hard on soil health in terms of aggregate stability. So being able to do those simple tests and kind of keep records on individual fields and see which way things are going and some of the practices that we're doing that may be detrimental. I, I think there's really lots of value in that from an environmental standpoint as, as well as on your own farm. And the, the economics of soil loss are huge when you really understand how much soil is blowing around. So I yeah. think uh, that's those are good, simple, easy tests that don't really cost anything that are probably almost as valuable as some of the other ones that we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say one little thing about the test that's kind of gotten to be sort of popular as a soil health test that I have some questions about is the underwear test where you bury the tidy whities and then see what happens to them after a while. And it's an interesting test because it does sort of tell you how quickly things are being broken down in their soil. So it's sort of an it is kind of an indication of the the activity that's going on in the soil. 
But I think you also have to ask yourself whether you want your organic materials, that's essentially what cotton underwear is, it's an organic material, whether you want your organic material to be breaking down that quickly in the soil. And that maybe super fast breakdown of that stuff is not the goal that you're aiming for. Rather, it's more of a a measured balance of building up organic matter and then slowly breaking it down to release the nutrients that the crop needs. So just my thoughts on that test and maybe, you know, it's another case of more is not better all the time. I'll just mention one other approach that people can use, kind of a do-it-yourself approach to soil testing. It's not actually soil testing in a traditional sense, but assessing your soil's ability to support a crop and identifying nutrients is that if you can get access even to small amounts of soil amendments that are high in a particular nutrient, you can apply those assuming that they are allowable in organic production. If you apply those even on very small areas on a field, mark them, and then farm over that and observe the crop response, that can also tell you a lot about what's going on with the nutrient dynamics in your soil. And you can maybe pick things up that way that a soil test wouldn't do. So it's just another kind of a do-it-yourself approach to soil fertility assessment where you can see the actual response to different types of amendments or even different rates of an amendment. Should I actually put on how much do I need the type of response that I want, the type of yield that I want without stimulating too many weeds? So just something to think about. Definitely a good way to try something new. I've heard from a few people that recommend a good healthy dose of calcium on on our kind of soils at home, and I've never broken down and done it, but that'd be a good way to to try just treat a few strips and and see what happens rather than sell the entire farm to to try some. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I know for some of those, usually micronutrients, I think that's probably a good way to, to try it out. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Thanks very much for your time and your knowledge. I think that's all we have for for this month's episode. Check out the Pivot website at www.pivotandgrow.com. It has tons of resources to help you through each step of your farming journey, from transition to production, marketing, and research. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Pivot and Grow, or join in the conversation using the hashtag Pivot and Grow.